Good morning to each and every one of you. I'd like to welcome all of you to Faith Youth and Church this morning, and a special welcome to those of you who are worshiping online with us this morning. As Brian mentioned, my name is John. I'm one of the lay worship leaders here at Faith Youth and Church, and it's an honor and a privilege to share God's Word with you this morning. If you've got your Bible with you, I'll invite you to open it up to the book of 2 Timothy. We've been talking about um, the book of 2 Timothy these past several weeks. Today we're going to start with 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'll give you a couple seconds to go ahead and put your finger in there before we get started this morning. And today we're continuing this sermon series, as I mentioned, on leaving a legacy, and it focuses on um, Paul's letter to 2 Timothy. And for those of you who are visiting us today or maybe missed a week in this series, um, all of them are recorded and they're all put up online on our website. And we would invite you to go ahead and visit the website sometime and hear those messages because they're very, very good and they speak a lot to us about how we should be living for today so that we can leave a legacy for the future. But for now, here's a brief recap of where we've been. The Apostle Paul wrote over half of the books of the New Testament. And these writings come in the form of letters to the churches that he helped form during his missionary travels. And they come in the form of letters to these churches and to the pastors of these churches. And um, 2 Timothy was actually written in A.D. 67. So 67 A.D. approximately is when uh, 2 Timothy was written. And it was written to Timothy... Hence the name, Timothy, who is the pastor of the church of Ephesus, which is the church that Paul had founded about 13 or so years earlier. Okay, So it's written in 67 AD. Um, if you know your Bible timeline, you know that the Apostle Paul died in 67 AD. At the time he wrote this letter, he was imprisoned in Rome and um, under Emperor Nero and was executed shortly thereafter. So these literally constitute the last words that Paul wrote, and they are his legacy not only to Timothy, but to the church in Ephesus, and subsequently to us as well. So in the first chapter of Timothy, Paul greets Timothy and um, shares his love for him and encourages him to stay strong in his faith, using all of the gifts at his disposal in his ministry, and to prepare others to follow him in ministry. And that's the purpose of this sermon series that we've been going through, is to prepare others to follow behind us in ministry. Chapter 2 takes a bit of a turn, and Paul warns Timothy that, hey, you are going to face some serious hardships as you go about this ministry. And you will have to endure challenges. And you need to stay focused on Jesus Christ during those challenges. And you need to hold on to sound religious doctrine And you need to keep your life as a leader in the church and a representative of Jesus Christ pure. You need to stay pure in spite of all these hardships. Today, in chapter 3, Paul is going to provide Timothy a warning about some of the opposition he is going to face from others, including other believers, while they are trying to build the church during the last days before Jesus returns. So before we jump into this reading, we're going to do that in just a second. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the ministry and the writings of the Apostle Paul. We thank you that he would use his last moments on this earth to 
to provide additional encouragement and instruction to us. And as you speak to us through these words this morning, I pray that the words that I speak and the meditations of all of our hearts be true to your word and bring honor and glory to you and help us develop a greater understanding of you and your will for our lives. Amen. So without further ado, let's jump into 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 1. But mark this. Does Paul have your attention? Mark this. There aren't too many verses in the Bible that start out with mark this. Pay attention, people. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Well, we're off to a good start, right? That does sound pretty terrible, doesn't it? How many of you, when you're hearing that description, start to think about how our society feels today? Anybody? Is it just me? Show of hands? A couple of you. The rest of you don't watch the news or pay attention to anything, probably. So, how many of you thought, based on those words, that we are actually living in the last days? Yeah? How many of you actually hoped that we're living in the last days? Say, Jesus, take me now. Yeah. It sounds like it, doesn't it? Well, if you think we're living in the last days, you're right. The last days, we often attribute to those to literally the last couple of days before Jesus comes down for his second coming. But the Bible tells us that the last days actually began right after Christ's resurrection. Right at the first Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was delivered to the, to the disciples, and Peter is addressing the crowd, and he says, in these last days, God's Holy Spirit will come down upon his people. He's trying to explain to the crowd that, hey, we're not drunk. We're just telling you the way it is, people, and this is it. He quotes the book of Joel and says, in the last days, this is what's going to happen. So we are in the last days right now. And we've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. So just a little aside on that. If you think we're in the last days, you're right. We don't know when the last day will be. It could be tomorrow. But be warned, we're in the last days. Verse 6. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Now I get to stop again right there, because I just lost about 50% of you in this congregation this morning with the gullible women thing. So um, I need to come to Paul's defense for just a little bit, because some of the things that he says in his letters can come off as a little bit miso misogynistic. And um, it's important to know that Paul doesn't think any less of women than he does of men. But he's um, addressing a problem that is occurring in the current time that he is writing this letter, the culture. 
So remember, he writes this letter to Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And at that time, because of their cultural background, the women in um, the Ephesian church, they didn't have any formal religious background. And so they're just starting to enjoy some freedom to learn about these teachings. And um, they're very eager, and that made them a target for false teachers. Because new believers who don't yet really know or have a strong biblical foundation can fall for everything. We did a wonderful sermon series this summer about heresies. And some of them are very subtle, but they're not biblical teaching. And so Paul is using women in this example, but he could very well be talking about any new believer. He just picks on women in this example because that's what's going on in the time and the culture in the church of Ephesus at that time. So hopefully I just brought 50% of you back into this conversation this morning. Um, we'll, and, and maybe we'll give Paul just a little bit of slack. Um, verse 7, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, now Janus and Jambres are believed to be the two magicians who um, counterfeited Moses' miracles in front of Pharaoh. So just so you know who Janus and, and Jambres are, I'm sorry, Janus and Jambres, um, you don't even remember their names, they're in trouble. Um, so, but just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers opposed the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. And that's the end of the reading. So what do we do with these people that we just read about? These horrible, terrible people that we've just read about. And the answer actually comes to us in some of the scripture that we read about last week that Pastor Brian preached on. And I'm going to bring us back to those today so that we can set them up and talk about them. So just going back to the very end of 2 Timothy, when, if you can pull those up, chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 22. Paul tells Timothy, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Do not have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. So the first thing we have to do is check ourselves and make sure that we aren't the people being described in our text this morning. And it sounds like that should be pretty easy, because those sounded like some pretty horrible people. And when we look around at the world today and how society seems to be falling apart around us, we don't consider ourselves to be part of that equation. It's something that other people are doing rather than us. But before we say it couldn't possibly be us, let's roll back and take a couple um, looks at some of those verses in more detail. Verse 2, Winton, if you could bring that up. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. The next thing in the slide deck. Perfect. Thank you. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. Does anybody see any part of themselves in any of those words? Has anyone put themselves before others? 
Has anyone even come a little bit concerned over what happened in the stock market over the last couple of weeks? And then felt a little bit of relief over the last couple of days when it kind of came back, seeing that their investments maybe recovered a little bit? How many of us in this room can honestly say that we give the first 10% of everything we earn to God? Or do we give God our scraps, the money that we have left over after we've paid our bills and for all the other things that we want to do? Now, don't get me wrong, those scraps may be nice. They may be big scraps. But are they the first fruits of our labor? Or are we giving God what's left over? Are we loving our money and holding on to it too tight? How many of us have been disobedient to our parents? Winton? No? All right. He says no. All right, we'll skip that one. How many of you have been ungrateful for what someone has done for you? Or for something someone else has that you don't have, and it causes a sense of of ingratitude. Let's move on to verse 3. I can beat us up all day here. Verse 3, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. Is anyone here today or listening online having trouble forgiving somebody or letting go of past hurts? Anyone here having any kind of self-control issues? I'm standing before you today as somebody who's 20 pounds overweight. Well, we'll go with 20 pounds anyway. And I tell you, I eat for a lot of reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with being hungry. I eat to celebrate life. I eat to console myself. I eat to entertain myself. I even need to calm myself down when things are getting kind of agitated and out of control. None of those have anything to do with being hungry, and they all represent some kind of lack of self-control. But pick your obsession. It doesn't have to be food. It could be drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be sex. It can be some of the more socially acceptable things like work, watching television, playing video games, shopping, If we look at ourselves, no matter what it is, no matter what our drug of choice is, we usually have something that demonstrates that our lives are a little bit out of control or out of balance and that we lack self-control. Verse 4. Treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. How are we spending our time Have we dedicated our lives first and foremost to worship, caring for others, serving in the church, building God's kingdom? Or do we schedule our lives around these things? Or instead, are these the things that we squeeze into our schedule after we've taken care of everything else? The things that are more important to us than what God calls us to do. If you're worshiping online with us this morning, we are happy to have you. And we know that many of you are out of town, and we know that some of you are physically unable to be here. But are there some of you worshiping online with us who are there simply because your couch and your coffee just look so appealing this morning that that seemed like the better option 
rather than driving in. I'm just asking questions. You've got to provide the answer. But our lives and the way we live them and our activities often show that our love of self is greater than our love of God. Verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. The appearance, the form of godliness, or the appearance of it, includes going to church, knowing our Christian doctrine, using Christian cliches, following Christian traditions. And this makes us all look really good on the outside. There's a lot of people that call themselves Christians, right? Because they do these things. But if those inner attitudes of faith and love and worship are missing on the inside, then all of those external things don't matter much. Debbie and I and a number of others of us in the congregation are part of a group that gets together regularly and talks about Scripture and shares life together. And one of the things that comes up pretty regularly and has come up a couple times, and Karen, I'm going to pick on you because you're here and you're the one who says it, It says, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would the evidence be sufficient to convict you? Yeah, it's come up a couple of times. And I'll throw myself in front of this bullet. I called myself a Christian my entire life. I've actively and regularly served in the church for as long as I can remember, certainly going back to a very young adult. But I would tell you I've only been on the path of a true disciple for about the last 15 years. So there's a lot of things that we do sometimes to check the boxes and just because that's the way we were told and that's the way we were raised and they really don't have anything to do with those attitudes of faith and love and worship. And Paul's warning us not to be deceived by what you see from anybody on outward appearances but it's the way that people really live their lives, especially the way they live their lives outside of church that will ultimately expose who we truly are. Verse 7. Always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. How many of us feel that it's easier to study Christianity than to do Christianity? Anybody? I think a lot of us do, if we're honest. And it's important to study and learn. We want to learn what God's will is for our lives so that we can go out and live it. But we have to guard against using our study or our lack of knowledge or lack of study as excuses for not building God's kingdom. And those excuses sound something like this. I can't do that. I have to get my Bible reading in today. Right? I can't do that. I'm preparing for my Bible study that I'm attending this week. Not leading necessarily, just attending. I'm too busy discipling myself to disciple other people. The other side of this looks like this. I'm not knowledgeable enough to disciple somebody else. I wouldn't know what I'm talking about. And the answer to that is this. If you want to disciple a new believer, all you have to do is stay one step in front of them. That's all. One step in front of that new believer. And then you have to be ready when they stump you, and they inevitably will, to just say, that's a great question. 
I don't know the answer to that, but I will have it for you by the next time we get together. There's a little bit of a fake it till you make it thing when you're discipling new believers, and you don't want to be teaching false doctrine or run that risk, but you don't have to know it all to disciple somebody else. So we want to make sure that our, as, as Paul says to Timothy, that we are always learning, but we never really come to knowledge of the truth because that's what God is calling us to do. Verse 9, then we'll be done beating each other up here. They will not get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. So we just need to remember that our sin has consequences. And one day, our sins will be exposed and come to known. And we will become to known for who we really are. And we need to live each day as if our actions will be known to everyone right now. That's verse 9. So looking at these lessons collectively, one of the things that we need to realize is that these characteristics of all these horrible people apply to us as believers, and they apply to other believers, just as much as they apply to the non-believers that are out there in society. So we need to check ourselves against this list and not give in to society's pressures. We need to not be comfortable just living a life of comfortable existence, and we have to stand up against evil when we see it, even if the personal cost to us may be very high even if it costs us our jobs, our livelihood, our relationships. We have to be willing to take a stand. Now, don't get me wrong. If we corrected every single thing on that list in our personal lives, we still can't earn our way into heaven. Only the salvation provided by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ can do that. We will never be worthy to be in contact with God without that salvation provided by Jesus. So this is not about earning your way into heaven. This is about avoiding becoming an obstacle to new believers. Because there are times in history, and it feels like sometimes that this is one of those times that Christians are some of the worst advertising for Jesus out there. Because our lives, quite frankly, don't look any different than anybody else's. And that has got to be something that we change. So once we've addressed these characteristics in ourselves, how do we respond to all those other terrible people that are out there? And fortunately, Paul gives us some instruction on that too. If we go to the next verses in 2 Timothy, again, we're going back to that, 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 24. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, And the Lord's servant, this is after you've taken care of all your junk, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who is taking them captive to do his will. I'm going to pack these for a couple minutes too, because these verses represent the three parts that need to be played when you are bringing a new believer to Jesus Christ. And that's our part, and it's God's part, and then it's their part. And literally, that scripture text breaks down all three of those parts. Our part 
is actually pretty straightforward. Don't be a jerk and gently instruct people about God's truth. God's part is seeing into that person's heart, knowing what they need, and then, according to Paul, to Timothy, quoting this, granting them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth. That's God's part. Now their part, they have to come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, meaning they have to choose to respond to God's invitation or to ours. That's not our problem. That's not our part. Our part is to gently instruct. And that may be pretty straightforward, but I have to admit, I'm finding it pretty difficult and increasingly difficult to gently instruct anybody these days. Anybody with me on that? It's becoming, looking at our society, you know, you see people and they are so far out there in their beliefs. And they're so polarized against anybody who thinks even remotely differently than them. So it's really, really hard to be gentle in our instruction. But as we've heard through these readings, and as we've heard over the last two weeks, as as we've um, heard from Pastor Brian uh, how to leave a legacy, we've heard how damaging our words can be if we don't choose them carefully. So we really have to strike a balance between grace and truth when we are dealing with others. Grace is the compassion for people. Grace is treating people better than they could possibly deserve. It's understanding their struggles, or trying to anyway, caring for their needs, sharing their burdens. We see grace in the ministry of Jesus Christ throughout the Gospels. It's just grace, grace, grace. But then there's truth. Truth is speaking words to people when they need to hear them, even if they don't necessarily want to. Truth is being faithful to our beliefs and our convictions, even when doing so might anger people or cost us in our jobs or our relationships. And Jesus was just as committed to the truth as he was to grace. So if we want to leave a legacy and make a positive impact for God's kingdom, we need to be just as committed to grace and truth as well. Unfortunately, balancing these is not easy, And most of us tend to fall on one side or the other of that. So real quick, do we have any people that slant to the grace side of things? One, two. Ooh, man, we got a bunch of truth tellers in the room today. This is great. Um, So you guys are loving this sermon, right? Because I'm just telling you the truth. So we've got some grace people. So grace-oriented people, you love the forgiveness and the freedom provided by Jesus. You just really are great at accepting people where they are and considering their thoughts and their feelings. And you can be very welcoming to others. And you generally um, are considered very caring and friendly. And this helps you make friends easily and helps attract people to the church, quite frankly. And it also helps society view of the church that we are judgmental and hypocritical. So all the grace lovers out there, you help soften the image of the church. And churches that lean heavily into grace are often considered welcoming and inviting. Now, how about the truth people in the congregation? How many people don't have hands? (laughs) All right, truth people. 
I'll own it. I'm a truth person. Truth-oriented people love studying the Bible and theology. We get a highly tuned sense of right and wrong, and we are especially gifted at pointing that out to people when they are doing wrong or how they could possibly be doing things just a little bit differently or a little bit better. But we're also fearless when it comes to having difficult conversations and addressing uncomfortable situations. We love to give advice, solicit it or not. And often, though, our friends, quite honestly, and our family consider us to be pretty insightful and actually helpful when we can offer clarity in the decision-making process. Churches that lean heavily on truth are bold and confident in their theology, and they will not be swayed by public opinion and pressure of society. And they often have a lot of good things to teach their members about living godly lives, which is why we're doing this sermon series these past few weeks. So how do we become better at balancing truth and grace? How do we become better at gently instructing and even being gently instructed? Well, one of the most powerful ways that we can become better about this is by getting together regularly with groups of fellow believers outside of worship. We refer to these as small groups in the past, but we're going to start referring to them as life groups going forward. And there are, just, there are a number of reasons why we're going to kind of change that terminology and pivot off of small groups to life groups. But there are two main reasons that I want to mention today. First is that while these groups may start small, we have no desire for them to stay that way. Our intention is for these groups to grow regularly and get bigger and bigger until ultimately they have to branch out or give birth to more groups. And as those groups grow and multiply, more and more people will have the opportunity to participate them and even lead them, and the church will continue to grow. So there's this growing and birthing aspect of it, and that's what gives it life. And then the second thing is that in addition to studying the Bible and studying Scripture, these groups are going to be formed with a greater emphasis on being in relationship with each other and sharing life together, just like the disciples in the first century did. And so as you hear this terminology going forward, just know that small groups are out and life groups are in. And so we're going we're gonna to hear this term life groups. But here's why we want to be participating in life groups. And here's how life groups help us balance grace and truth. The first way is that they strengthen our ability to, to tell the truth and to know what the truth is. We can't convey it if we don't know it. And Christians have a shocking lack of knowledge of the Bible. We're starting to remedy that a little bit this year, and that's why we're doing our daily Bible reading. But a LifeWay research study, LifeWay, excuse me, research study, conducted about four years ago, found that people who participate in life groups are actually two times as likely to be reading their Bible regularly than those that don't. And people that participate, that same study said, that participate in life groups are also more likely to pray and more likely to confess their sins than those that don't participate. And both of those things, prayer and confession, are predictors of biblical engagement. So by participating in life groups, we have a lot more knowledge of the truth, and that makes us a lot more comfortable sharing that with other people. But life groups are more than just a Bible study. 
or Sunday school group. Because life groups have that relational element to them that can be lacking in those areas. Life groups provide an opportunity to grow in grace by being in relationship with each other and doing life together. And when we do that, we become less judgmental about those terrible people that are out there. We get to know them as people. We get to know what they're struggling with. We get to know how those struggles came about. We get to know why they are the way they are. Life groups also provide an opportunity to share our faith with other believers as they struggle with life and issues that are going on in their life. And it provides those same believers an opportunity to share their faith with us when we struggle. So there's this interaction. And for new believers or people who are seeking, life groups provide a safe setting to ask those basic questions in a community of people who also wrestle and struggle with their faith at times. And finally, life groups provide an opportunity for us to challenge each other, to check each other against that list of all of those horrible descriptors that if we look hard in the mirror, we realize that we fit some of those too. And by being in groups with other Christian believers, we can check each other and keep each other in balance and pull away from that list of adjectives and get to a list of adjectives that are a lot more pleasing to our Lord. Now, we're going to be forming life groups over the next couple of months here at Faith, Truth, and Church because we're kicking off a study of the Gospel of John starting in January. So we're going to be forming these life groups as a congregation, and we would love for everybody to be a part of them. And we're also going to have people and a great need that for people who will facilitate these groups. And you don't have to have a deep knowledge of the Bible to be a facilitator of these groups. Training will be provided for everything that's required. You just have to have a willingness to make yourself available to the people in your group. Obviously, you've got to have availability to be part of the groups, um, but you've got to, more importantly, be willing to open your heart and be in relationship with folks. So we pray that you will consider joining one of these life groups, and we pray that you'll consider being a facilitator for one of them. And, um, you know, it, it's very important to us, and, and by growing in grace and truth through the formation of these life groups and pouring into others, as Paul instructed Timothy, that will allow us to, just like Paul to Timothy, to other believers, that will allow us to leave a legacy to others as well when our time on this earth is completed. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. So much thanks, dear Lord, for all of the believers who have gone before us, all of the saints that have gone before us, that have led lives that put us on a path to righteousness. We thank you, dear Lord, for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for all the sacrifices uh, and high prices that he paid to spread the good news, to make your word known to each and every one of us ultimately. We thank you that in the midst of his struggles in a Roman prison, knowing that he was about to be executed, his number one thought was to continue to share the good news, to continue to pour out to other believers 
to share this message with his brother, his son, Timothy, so that he could continue to grow the church after Paul's time on earth was done. We thank you, dear Lord, that we ultimately received these words as well and that we have the opportunity to live lives that will reflect you today and grow new believers that will come behind us tomorrow to continue the calling that you have placed on all of our hearts. That's to grow disciples who grow disciples and to make disciples of all nations. We pray, dear Lord, that you will help us pivot to that today, not tomorrow, not next week. We are in the last days, and we have no idea, dear Lord, when the last days will be. So help us to feel urgency that today is that day to change our lives and do what you've called us to do. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.